Hi there, and welcome to episode 27 of the T21 Mom podcast. My name is Mary, and like every week, I'll be your host, along with my friend Ron. Hey, Mary. Hey, Ron. Each episode, we'll talk about life, Down syndrome, mamahood, single parenting, and pretty much everything in between. I have a daughter named Ainsley, and she's seven years old and rocking an extra chromosome, also known as Down syndrome. And I am living life my way. So today, who are we talking to? We are talking to Dr. Susan Fawcett. And we had her on last season before she had got become Dr. Susan. That's right. We had her on in uh, season one for positive behavioral supports. And we brought her back to talk about something a little bit different. And what is different about what she's talking about today? If before it was behavioral, today it's... We're going to talk about Down syndrome and the autism connection. Also, oh, back to the dual diagnosis. Exactly. Okay. Be- because looking back, uh, when we had Dr. Karen Bopp on, our autism episode was one of the most popular ones, along with uh, the potty training with Katie from last week. And I just realized that people really need information about dealing with the dual diagnosis. And Susan brings forth a huge amount of knowledge about both of these uh, diagnoses and she's going to talk in some pretty good detail about some you know gray flags and red flags and things that we can look out for okay let's go talk to susan let's today on the t21 mom podcast we are bringing back a previous guest one of our most popular episodes was the one on the dual diagnosis of down syndrome and autism So today we have the now doctor, Susan Fawcett, back with us, who can talk more about the Down syndrome autism connection. Welcome back, Susan. Thank you. It's very nice to be back. We're we're so happy that you, you were able to come back and we can talk on this topic more. And so I know you were on our previous episode and, but can you tell us a little bit about you and your role at the Down syndrome resource foundation? Sure. I've been uh, at DSRF for now almost 17 years, coming up this summer. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm uh, the Director of Therapy, Behavior, and Family Support, but prior to that role and recently completing my PhD, I was the lead speech-language pathologist. Um, Now in my role, I tend to help families who whose kids are exhibiting a lot of behavioral issues, or um, as well as helping teens and adults with Down syndrome and mental health concerns. Awesome. And as I mentioned in the previous episode, I was part of your study, which was fantastic. So and thank you. (laughs) We'll have you back for another episode on that. So I think that would be really beneficial too. So I'm really glad that you've been able to come back and talk specifically about Down syndrome and autism because I think there isn't a lot of information about that out there. And, you know, and like when we had Dr. Karen Bopp on the previous episode about autism, she said it's really difficult to diagnose autism in a child that already has a diagnosis such as Down syndrome. Can you elaborate a little bit on why this is? 
I can. It it really is so, so difficult. And I definitely don't envy the teams of professionals who have to make the ultimate call on this. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had conversations with the speech language pathologists at Sunny Hill Health Center um, who are part of that diagnostic team. And they've expressed how tough it is when they get kids who are already diagnosed with something like Down syndrome. Um, they've admitted that many times they go by gut instinct or they, you know, look for a, an autistic flavor in the child um, and rely really a lot on what parents or other professionals who have worked more with the child for longer periods of time and, you know, their opinions on it. And of course, as you are well aware, as a mom of one of these kitties, um, they're really variable from day to day, Mm -hmm. right? And Mm -hmm. especially when you think about you know, putting a child through a formal assessment process, you know, on, on a good day, it might not look at all like the child has autism because they're, you know, really outgoing and participating well, and then they might just not be having a good day, and then they get an autism diagnosis. So that makes it more complicated as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, I, I mean, we can talk later, but yeah, my diagnosis experience wasn't, wasn't great, but, um, and do we really know about how prevalent autism is in our rocking kiddos? I mean, as Karen was saying, it wasn't that long ago that they thought you couldn't even have the dual diagnosis. That's right. So, um, you know, clinically, I'll, I'll speak first clinically and then what the research says as well. Sure. So at the SRF over the years, we've seen that approximately somewhere between 10 to 15 percent of the kids with Down syndrome who come to see us have a dual diagnosis. Okay. Um, I suspect, though, that that's increasing. So, for example, one of our OTs had a look at her caseload recently and noticed that 50 percent of her kids had a dual diagnosis. 50. 50. And that's actually quite reflected in what the research says as well, because um, across, you know, maybe about a half dozen articles and and a couple of books, um, I've seen rates that go anywhere from 5% at one end to 42% at the high end. 42. 42 percent which is really high and and really any way you slice it it's much more common than in the non-down syndrome populations where it's more you know one to two percent of people have an autism spectrum disorder wow wow that's huge i didn't realize it was that range so yeah wow yeah so yeah i can sort of Sorry, go ahead. And the range also, the range points to the fact that it's hard to diagnose, right? That just tells you that right there, right? right? That it's, there's a range because some people diagnose it a lot and some people don't. Yes, that's true. But yeah, I can understand now why parents are really kind of struggling because even just today I was reading about a mom where the the teacher refused to believe that the child had the dual diagnosis, felt that he didn't, he could stop his stimming. And I thought that was crazy, you know, that she's disputing the IEP and, and uh, all these other, the doctors who'd made that diagnosis. So yeah, that's, wow. I, I had no idea it was, it could even be that high. Yeah. And as I said, just previously, I said, you know, my experience when I got the diagnosis, it 
was really terrible. I mean, I don't think the doctors intended to make it terrible, but it was awful. And I really felt like the doctor didn't know much about Down syndrome. And I know that there are a lot of similar behaviors with both Down syndrome and autism. And I know you and I previously talked about this, but if parents are concerned their child may have autism, can you talk a little bit about some of the things to look for? I know you and Glenn wrote an article and you talked about the gray flags and the red flags. So perhaps you can talk a little bit about that. And we can also link that article on in the show notes and on the website. Sure, that that would be great. And, you know, I'm really happy to talk about this and hopefully provide some clarity to mm -hmm. some families. But it's also really important for your listeners to know in advance that every child is, of course, unique and must be assessed individually. So, of course, you know, a child with Down syndrome may be diagnosed with autism, even if they have very few of the characteristics I'm about to talk about. Mm -hmm. Whereas some kids will have lots of these characteristics and won't receive a diagnosis because maybe they're actually doing pretty well at, at home, they're doing pretty well in school, they're okay in community settings. Um, it's not impacting their daily life. And right. that's one of the pieces of the autism diagnosis is that it needs to be, you know, negatively impacting the, the child's life. Right. So just keeping with all that in mind, mm -hmm. we do definitely have some things that we refer to, you know, um, as gray flags and red flags. I'll start with the gray ones. Okay. And these are really the ones where there is quite a lot of overlap um, between Down syndrome and autism. So, you know, you might, as a parent of a child with Down syndrome, I don't want somebody to start listening to this list and start panicking. You know, you'd have to have quite a few of the items on this list for me to start worrying about maybe a, um, a, a secondary diagnosis. Okay. Um, and the first one is especially, uh, you know, overlapping, and that's a preference for sameness or insisting on routines. Now, pretty much every child with Down syndrome has some degree of that. Um, but you have to kind of keep in mind that there is a matter of degree there. So there's a difference for I'd rather things be the same all the time and I'd rather the routines stick that way. And somebody who's rigidly insistent that they do and if things change from those routines, they have, you know, a complete and total meltdown. Okay. That would be much more concerning, right? Okay. Um, you also have to note that that same characteristic is also a characteristic that happens in kids who are duly diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder, right? So <laughs> be already, even just with this first gray flag, that there's a lot of um, overlap. Mm -hmm. um, there's definitely uh, kids with a dual diagnosis often will use more stereotyped repetitive utterances, otherwise known as echolalia. So mm -hmm. they might repeat, you know, scripts from movies. They might re repeat verbatim what somebody has just said to them quite often. Um, often kids will have poor eye contact or not very good joint attention or what we call triadic eye gaze. So this is essentially you know, using your eyes and um, to share mm -hmm. uh, an experience with someone else. So, you know, a child who's looking at a toy and then looking up at mom and then maybe, you know, looking back at the toy again and, and wanting to, to share their experience with another person is okay. essentially what those things are about. Um, another one is engaging in some repetitive play. So you have your classic example there of lining up cars mm -hmm. in 
exactly the same kind of row and order. Um, kids who mouth objects a lot. Um, this next one makes me laugh a little bit because, you know, we know that a lot of children with Down syndrome have challenging behaviors, mm -hmm. but, you know, if they have more challenging behaviors um, or they're more pervasive and they affect the child's daily life a little bit more, then that might be a sign that autism is at play. Okay. Um, a lot of kids with a dual diagnosis will have uh, more delayed development, um, in especially in terms of communicative de development. So they may be functioning more in the moderate to severe range of intellectual disability rather than the mild to moderate range. Okay. Um, and one last one that I'll point out, this isn't, I haven't mentioned everything on the, on the list. So mm -hmm. I will refer people to the article for a few more um, of the, of the specific items. But another one is uh, social communication issues. So one that really stands out to me here is that, you know, we all engage in communication for different reasons. Mm -hmm. So, you know, on a daily basis, you're going to engage in communication to get your needs met uh, because you want something, mm -hmm. you're going to protest things, right? Those things fall into a category of you need them to get your basic requirements of life met. But there's another category of functions that's much more social. Right. So this would be things like commenting on things you see around you okay. or okay. You know, engaging in small talk or greetings. Right. Those just are basically to involve another person. Okay. And those ones tend to be less common in kids who have a dual diagnosis. So they're communicating to get their needs met, but they're not necessarily communicating for social reasons, for those pure social reasons. So, for example, if they're don't really want to say hi and bye, would that would that be like a? It could be, it could be. Um, okay. But again, I know loads of kids with just Down syndrome who aren't great at greetings. Um, so you know, it's it's more. Again, it's more an overall picture, mm -hmm. right? Okay. If they're overall in engaging in um, social reasons for communicating, then I don't, I wouldn't worry about it too much okay i see what you're saying yeah okay yeah that makes sense and then moving on to the red flags so mm -hmm. these are um red flags because they're a little they're definitely more concerning okay and the reason why is that the behaviors on this list are typically not associated with kids who have down syndrome alone okay so these ones are quite different so the first one being um we know that Autism is largely a social, a deficit of social communication, a disorder mm -hmm. of social communication. Um, so if a little person with Down syndrome, you know, has no interest in communicating with other people or they kind of have a general lack of interest in people in general, um, that's definitely a red flag. So okay. any, any child who you would describe as being socially indifferent or withdrawn um, could definitely have an autism diagnosis. So the example I always give people is, you know, if I am seeing a new family and mom and dad come in or mom or dad or whoever it is with the little person and I'm talking a bit to the parents and playing with the child a little bit, and that little person would rather kind of, you know, turn their body around away from the crowd 
um, and engage in some repetitive motion with maybe a piece of paper flapping or running a rolling a car along the uh, the ground or banging a block on the floor and they aren't that interested in communicating with me then that's a red flag okay. so because most kids with Down syndrome would be really interested in what mom and dad are doing first of all mm -hmm. and they would usually be pretty interested in what I was doing as a novel person right okay. so um, not to be confused though with kids who are shy right so um, kids who are shy might not communicate with me because I'm a new person, mm -hmm. but they would be curious. You know, that kid would maybe play in the corner, but they would be stealing glances up at me and kind of like be curious about me. Okay. Um, or a child with autism might not exhibit those kinds of behaviors. Ah, okay. That's, yeah, that's uh, a really good point. Yeah, yeah. And I see now like how it's so challenging. Like I didn't yes. like I, I didn't really understand fully how I mean, I know we've talked previously, but yes, I understand. I'm getting it now why it is so difficult to, mm -hmm. to diagnose it. Yeah. OK. Yeah. And then a few other red flags. Um, you uh, kids with Down syndrome are usually quite adept at using gestures to communicate. Mm -hmm. So we know that these kidlets have difficulty with expressive language and they often don't have very complex expressive language. But a lot of them are actually still well able to tell you quite complex stories through the use of facial expressions and acting things out and pointing at things. Um, and if that's not, if they're not using gestures um, from quite an early age, I would be concerned about that. Um, another thing that can happen in uh, the non-Down syndrome population, um, in some kids, in a subset of kids who are diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder, they will experience what is called regression mm -hmm. um, in cognitive language or social skills. So basically what's happening there is the child looks like they're developing normally for a little while they're acquiring words and they're developing in other areas of um of skill and then at you know some later age they lose some of those skills so they aren't speaking as much anymore they're not um maybe things that they were doing independently like some life skill type things that they were doing independently, they're no longer able to do independently. Mom now needs to help them with things. Um, and that can happen in kids with Down syndrome as well. Okay. So if okay. that happens, that's a definitely a red flag for me. So, and it's only happened actually a handful of times, okay. but that's in my experience, but it's definitely a red flag because you wouldn't typically see that um, in a kid with Down syndrome alone. I do, um, I, yeah, I do remember them specifically asking me that question and yeah. and the answer was no. So of course I thought, okay, good, because I thought for sure that was something for sure. But, you know, again, it's like you said, it's not that common in, with the kids with Down syndrome. So, which is good no, to know, I not. think. Like, I think that can reassure parents, like if you're reaching those certain milestones that they're probably going to stay or like the language, it's not going to regress. So, cause that was my fear when they talked about that. I thought, oh great, we're struggling so hard and now we're going to take two steps back, but it hasn't happened. So no, no. And it, it in all likelihood will not happen. So um, it is, it is definitely less common for sure. It's just when it does happen, that's a, uh, that puts people on high alert for sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
But also keeping in mind there that we know that these kidlets, you know, have a lot of medical complications. Mm -hmm. They can have sleep issues. There can be other things at play that are causing, you know, them to lose language skills or, um, or their ability to be independent in things. So always checking the medical stuff first. Of course. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. A um, couple other things that are red flags. Uh, if a child with Down syndrome has a total lack of verbal communication um, and they're not really attempting even to use sign or um, other modes of communication like pictures or, you know, if, if, they, if, if it's really effortful to get them to communicate um, and they're really not doing it spontaneously at all, then that's a red flag for sure because most kids with Down syndrome will have We'll, we'll communicate spontaneously in some mode or another. Mm-hmm. Um, treating people as inanimate objects is another one. So the, the example of this that um, I often go to is, you know, instead of if there's, you know, something yummy up on a shelf, right, like fishy crackers, mm-hmm. and the child wants it, um, most kids with Down syndrome, even if they don't have a lot of language yet, they'll kind of, you know, grunt and point to it and look at mom and poke mom and point to it again, right? Um, and they can get their point across that way. Whereas a child with autism, what you often see is they, they won't look at mom, they'll just take her hand mm-hmm. and place it up by the um, fishy crackers. Right. Yes. I so have heard of that. Looking at, um, yeah. So that's definitely, you know, you don't see that a lot in kids with Down syndrome alone. Um, and then the last one on this list is uh, there are behaviors that are quite often associated with autism that definitely don't occur very often in most people. Mm-hmm. Um, like uh, you will sometimes see kids with autism who, if you give them an object of any kind, they always smell it. Okay. Right. So they're trying to get like a, they're trying to get a, um, a sensory, um, you know, something from that. Uh, so they'll smell objects. That's not common in kids with Down syndrome. And then the other one that is a red flag is self injurious behaviors. So those can be quite common in kids with autism, but not in kids with Down syndrome. So this would be things like head banging, mm-hmm. um, kids who bite bite their hand or their wrist um if those are going on for i mean it's it's not super uncommon for a, a kid to go through a short period of doing something like that mm-hmm. but if it's pervasive or it lasts quite a long time or the child's actually injuring themselves then then that's a red flag okay okay yeah yeah i, I have read about I've... that on several forums about the self-injurious behavior and it's like Thankfully, Ainsley doesn't do any of that, so I'm really grateful. But I, I really feel for those parents because it's yeah. hard and it's really challenging. And yeah, I, yeah, it, it's tough for sure. Yeah, it would be. I would imagine it would be really unsettling and and upsetting to parents to witness their child doing that. Oh yeah, I can't even imagine. Those are awesome so like i said we'll we'll post the link to that article in our show notes so that parents can you know read it um when they have a moment so you know if there's that concern and i mean one thing that i've read many times on all sorts of down syndrome you know facebook pages is that you know they don't think their child with down syndrome can have autism because they have pretty good eye contact 
and are reasonably social. And I'm kind of thinking these are, you sort of touched on it. These are probably myths or, I mean, I think that's people just hear about that in the autism community that you, they don't have good eye, if they don't have good eye contact, they probably have autism, which isn't necessarily always the case. But I, I mean, I've heard that a lot, but maybe you can just speak a little bit about that. Sure. And it, it follows really well from what we just talked about, which is that, you know, it's a numerous, varied and complex set of symptoms that you're looking at here um, to make a, a diagnosis. And we really can't and shouldn't as professionals mm -hmm. um, just look at one symptom, right? As isolated symptoms like eye contact aren't really going to be that helpful. Um, it might be part of what, it might be one little piece of what leads a professional to make a diagnosis of autism in a child with Down syndrome, but one symptom will never explain the whole picture. You need, you definitely need the whole picture. And I mean, I think we talked about this the other day that, you know, people with ASD alone can have good eye contact and people with Down syndrome alone can have poor eye contact, mm -hmm. right? So, yeah. And I mean, it even eye contact really varies with across cultures as well. Of so course. even with a typically developing population, um, somebody in a Western culture might, you know, um, experience somebody from another culture as having what they would consider poor eye contact just because it's not um, it's not the same, doesn't work, function the same way in their culture. Mm -hmm. So it, yeah, it's basically the point there is it's really important not to look at isolated symptoms. Yes. Okay. That's yeah. good to know. And I mean, and Ainsley, like, and I guess I was sort of part of that myth too, is I thought, oh, well, she has decent eye contact, but you know, there's so much, like you said, it's just so much more involved. And I mean, I know you sort of touched on it and I, it's might be obvious, but why do you think kids with Down syndrome tend to be diagnosed later? Like it's, it seems that kids in the typical population, I don't know, they often are diagnosed around two, which just seems so early <laughs> or even three. And, but I don't really hear of many kids with Down syndrome being diagnosed that early. It tends to be like Ainsley was five and a half. We were on a wait list for a year. So I guess four and a half, but I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. And <clears throat> I would actually say, honestly, in my experience, Ainsley's quite young to be diagnosed for oh, kids wow. with Down syndrome. I think it usually happens a bit later than that. So, um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's good that you, you were on the ball and you got, you got the ball rolling when you did. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, you know, as we just discussed, of course, there's a ton of overlap in between the two, which can make it really hard to tease them apart. And, you know, I think the last thing that parents are thinking about, honestly, is could something else be going on? Because, you know, my child already has Down syndrome, yeah. right? Like, what, why would I be looking to see if there's something else going on? Um, so I think that's part of it. But mm -hmm. I think the main culprit here is um, something called diagnostic overshadowing. So that is, you know, a parent actually might raise the concerns with um, their doctor about their child with Down syndrome. You know, maybe they've noticed some of these gray or red flags. And the doctor then attributes the concern to Down syndrome. Yes. Right. So okay. um, in that case, if you, if a parent has that experience, I urge you to keep advocating. Um, it can definitely be helpful to get um, a letter or two from therapists who work really closely with your child. Mm -hmm. um, 
an OT or an SLP who have noticed some of these concerns and can outline them in a letter. Mm -hmm. okay. um, you know, I hate that that has to happen. You know, it, it should be enough yeah. for the, you know, but sometimes it's just helpful to have a, um, a professional back you up, so to speak. Yeah, I, I agree because like the therapists are going to have spent more time with the child than the doctor really <laughs> unless the child maybe has some more medical issues but and again that could even be playing into it but yes I think you're right and and if you think there is an issue to to advocate because I had no clue it was some random person doing uh, an assessment who actually mentioned it to me I wasn't even on my radar that it was possible that she could have autism like I I didn't I didn't think so. I thought she was delayed, but I didn't think it was possible that she ha could have autism. So yeah. Yeah. But I'm, and I'm glad that I pursued it obviously. So, and we have a pretty good pediatrician who, who, you know, basically is, she's helped me a lot. And, you know, when I've suggested things, she's been really open to it. So she got us on the list right away, which makes a huge difference. Cause as we know, the wait list here is like a year, you know, unless you go yeah. privately. So, Yeah. And I know that girls can be harder to diagnose than boys is what I've heard. Is this true in both the typical and the Down syndrome population? Um, I'm not, that's a really interesting question. Uh, I'm not a hundred percent sure about this one. I know um, in the non Down syndrome population that boys are four times more likely to be diagnosed with autism than mm -hmm. girls are. Um, I suspect it's slightly more even in kids with Down syndrome. So okay. I, I don't think it's that you'd find that it's that uh, the ratio is that unbalanced. Um, I think there's probably still more boys okay. um, than girls, but I bet you it's more even. Um, and that's, again, though, that's just a clinical impression. And I haven't seen any research that talks about that or that talks about the difficulty of diagnosis in, in girls versus boys. Um, however, it does stand to good reason that professionals may be more likely to expect um, a boy with Down syndrome to have autism than a girl because it is tends to be more prevalent. Um, all social kinds of disorders are more prevalent in, in boys. All language disorders are more um, prevalent in boys. So, you know, it does it does make sense that they might be more on alert um, in diagnosing a boy than than a, a girl. Oh, okay. That, that makes sense. Yes. And I know Karen touched a little bit about it in her episode as well. So, okay. That's interesting. But I, I didn't know about that. It was probably fairly equal girls to boys in the Down syndrome population. So yeah, it's a, I don't know that it's equal, but I, yeah, close. I do think it, I think it's not four to one. Okay. Yeah. I think it's probably, um, yeah, there's, there's, a it's more evenly diagnosed than that. Oh, okay. That's, that's very yeah. interesting. So, you know, because of the challenges of diagnosing autism in individuals with Down syndrome for various reasons, and there's really like no real definitive test for autism like there is for Down syndrome, which is just a simple blood test. How do we, do we know if it's really autism or versus low cognitive ability? Like, do we know? And like you said earlier, it's like sometimes it's just a gut feeling that the child has autism. 
Yeah. So this is a really great question, and it's one that we talk about, uh, you know, as therapists um, and teachers at DSRF, we talk about it amongst ourselves a lot, Mm -hmm. um, because it is very hard to tease apart um, what might be just lower cognition from autism, because they can look very much alike. So we know um, from research that ASD is more often diagnosed in children with Down syndrome who are functioning at a lower level cognitively, um, but it's also not always the case. So um, we definitely have had, I've had quite a few kids at DSRF who are you know, who have a dual diagnosis, who are really spectacular at reading, or they have quite high level speech and language skills. And yet, you know, they're, they definitely have the, the autism diagnosis. Um, what makes it really tough is that all those gray flags we talked about are also more likely to show up in kids who are functioning at a lower level cognitively. So, you know, um, the classic example there is problem behavior, right? So problem behavior tends to definitely happen more um, commonly in, in kids who are functioning at a, at a little bit of a lower level. Sensory issues are more common. And of, of course the delayed development is more common as well. So what I would say there is that, That's why we need to pay more attention to the social component, right? Because you can have um, a kidlet who is uh, functioning at quite a low level cognitively, who is still very interested in people and wants to have people around them. And they engage in a lot of attention-seeking behavior and that sort of thing. Um, So paying attention to the social, how your child is doing socially, um, and how they are around other people um, might help you tease that apart. Okay. Oh, that's really good to know because, again, yeah, just the struggle, I think, to even find people who, who know enough about the both diagnoses. You know, they're most they're experts in diagnosing autism, but they may not know a lot about Down syndrome or another diagnosis that a child might have, you know, and which leads me into, as I've said a few times already about how terrible my diagnosis experience was. It was really awful. I felt like I'd been just left in a dark abyss and I was never going to get out. It was almost as bad as getting the diagnosis of Down syndrome. (laughs) But, uh, you know, I really felt the doctor didn't know much about Down syndrome. And because he even wrote in the report and spoke about Ainsley sitting in an odd position, which I thought was sort of crazy because anyone who knows anything about people with Down syndrome, they always often sit in these crazy positions and they, they do it so easily because they can, you know, bend like a pretzel. So, you know, um, like, are you aware that there's anything being done to help educate the doctors more about Down syndrome? I mean, the doctor who did Ainsley's assessment, the psychologist, I mean, he even said that they're seeing more kids with Down syndrome, like coming in for assessment. So, you know, that would tell me like, well, are they trying to learn more about Down syndrome? I don't know if you would, if you would know anything about that. Yeah, I can comment on that. First, though, I'm really sorry that you had such a bad experience. Um, Having said that, it's not, yours is not the first um, bad experience that I've heard from parents. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I mean, a lot of it, I think, is that you get this report um, that tells you how poorly your child is doing, right? Because yes. they've used a bunch of, they've used a battery of standardized tests and they've compared the child against typically developing children. And, and it just kind of points out to you how, you know, not well your child is functioning. And, and it can be really, I can understand why it puts you into a dark place. Mm -hmm. um, what do you think, like, is there anything, I would love to know from you, is there anything that that um, team or the doctor could have done or said to have made your experience better? Well, one of the things that he did say to me, <clears throat> and what he actually said, and I, I'll just preface, I don't think he meant don't ever to teach her these things, but he actually said, don't bother teaching her the ABCs or the niceties such as please and thank you. And my heart sank because she already knew her ABCs at the time of the assessment and she could say please. And I, I hope he didn't mean don't ever bother teaching her that because she'll never understand it because she can't, can understand it. She can, she could read. I mean, she could read now at the time she couldn't, but yeah. And that was so defeating to me. It was really, I, I felt defeated because I felt like I had wasted all this time spending with Amy learning these things you know like all of us parents do you know you're trying to keep your child you know somewhat close to what the typical child is doing I mean I, I mean as I get older the gap gets bigger but you know you want to keep you know at least them in sight and you know and I also don't feel that they need to tell uh, parents the cognitive age of the child because yeah. like you said they're measuring like I already know that my kids delayed you know, she has Down syndrome, right? Surprise. But, you know, they're measuring, like you said, against uh, typical children. I mean, I guess there's not a a test. Like, I, I don't, I think it's the DSM test. I don't even know what it's called the, that they're actually using for the measure to measure. Yeah, it's the DSM. Okay. Yeah. Like, I, yeah, like, I don't know why they bother telling parents the cognitive age of their child, because that was really very, very defeating for me, you know, because I just, I just thought I, it's a losing battle is what it felt like when I left. And then they just hand yeah. you this book and they tell you to look up the number in the book to call, you know, and then that was it. And, you know, and I get it that they're seeing so many people and stuff, but, you know, it just... You know, the other, the pediatrician who was there, she did say to me, though, that autism is a spectrum disorder and you will see great gains in the next year. And she mm -hmm. was, she was right about that. I mean, it wasn't the end of the world getting this diagnosis. It actually opened up a lot of doors for Ainsley, you know, where I could get her uh, different types of therapy that I otherwise would not be able to get her. But yeah, I guess if doctors maybe we're just more attuned to some of these other diagnoses that are, that they're seeing, you know, it's not just kids coming in that might have just an autism diagnosis, but like, as Karen also said in her episode, I, th I can't remember the percentage, but it was very high that if you ha have an autism diagnosis that you likely have a secondary diagnosis of something. So, yeah. Yeah. So that, yeah. And I mean, I did write a letter to, or an email eventually uh, because I had to calm down. It took me about a month to to write back, and and uh, and I did explain all that to the the woman who had sent me the email. And I don't know if anything ever became of it or anything, but you know that it, I just felt defeated, and it was tough. It was really tough. 
Yeah. So us as professionals need to, you know, learn from that because we, we would never, I, I would think we would, none of us would ever want a parent to leave feeling defeated, mm-hmm. right. Or in a dark place. So, um, yeah, so it's, it's, and I think definitely one thing that stands out to me is that parents need more support in, in navigating the, the diagnosis once it's been given. Because as you said, you know, you just got handed a book with a phone number and kind of left to do it on your, on your own. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and maybe we need to do a better job of um, helping you through that, essentially. Um, yeah, yeah, because like even finding a consultant, like it was challenging because there were aren't a lot of behavioral consultants who have experience with a dual diagnosis and uh, mm-hmm. the one we did get Darren uh, is lovely and she actually someone else that I think I contacted actually recommended her and she has lots of experience with people with Down syndrome and also autism so that's worked out really well and I'm really glad that I was able to find her and, and have her on Ainsley's team you know and I realize other parents aren't going to be as lucky but I think sometimes you just have to persevere because I emailed every single consultant on that list. It was well over a hundred, you know, and less than 50% got back to me. So, you know, initially I was just sort of looking at who I thought would be a good fit, but you know, no, I had to email every single one. So yes, it's time consuming, but you want to get the best that you can for your child to succeed and for them to set the plans in motion. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Another thing I just wanted to mention about that um, with the going to get the diagnosis, um, one thing for parents to just think about is, you know, in my role as an SLP, I've gone with a couple of families to that meeting when they're receiving the the diagnosis. So either, you know, no, your child doesn't have it or yes, they do. Um, So if you feel comfortable, if a family feels comfortable asking a particular therapist or, you know, somebody else who's close to them, who knows the child well, who might know both diagnoses fairly well, um, that might be helpful because it's a lot, as you just outlined, it's a lot for families to process Mm -hmm. um, in that moment. And having somebody who is there who, as I say, is knowledgeable, might be um, comforting and and helpful um, in processing the information. I think that's an excellent idea because I was by myself and I pretty much didn't remember anything after they just told me and I took a quick look at the report and, you know, they went over it with me and stuff, but you kind of don't really remember much after that. It's kind of like a big fog. So... Oh, I was going to tell you too about the, um, another part of that question was about educating, um, uh, doctors about Mm -hmm. Down syndrome. So we are actually working on that. It's part of our strategic plan at DSRF, um, to develop presentations about Down syndrome that are aimed towards medical professionals. And certainly within that, we would talk about other diagnoses that can occur, Um, alongside Down syndrome so that maybe that diagnostic overshadowing does not happen quite as often Um, because it's actually not just autism that gets missed so lots of mental health diagnoses get missed like ADHD gets overshadowed by Down syndrome um, obsessive compulsive disorder depression anxiety those are all things that regularly get attributed to Down syndrome when in their own right they're their own diagnosis so yeah. yeah, 
Some of them just the 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 doctor will say, oh, it's you know, it's just Down syndrome. syndrome. Yes, and I've heard that a lot. Not from not from our pediatrician, but I have heard that a lot in the community that people get that, which is, yeah, because you know, I think as a parent, you kind of know if your kid if there's something just a little off, and and then it's kind of frustrating if the they're just oh, it's just Down syndrome. No, I don't think it is. So, yeah. yeah. So. You know, because our kiddos can be so complex in diagnosing and really parents know their kids best, what do you suggest that parents do if they suspect their child with Down syndrome might also have the dual diagnosis of autism and if they've seen a lot of the red and gray flags that you talked about? Yeah, so I think, you know, the first step is to, um, you know, do what makes us all feel better about things that worry us, and that's to talk to other people about it. So, Mm -hmm. you know, don't keep it inside your own brain and worry about it. Um, You know, to talk to your child's, talk to your friends, talk to your, um, especially your child's therapist, for sure, Mm -hmm. um, because they may have also noticed similar things. They may, um, therapists, you know, will also bring this up to parents if we're concerned about some of these red flags. It's definitely within the scope of an SLP practice um, that we definitely bring those concerns up to parents Um, so you know talking about it is definitely a good idea Um, talking to your pediatrician to see if they have similar concerns and then the pediatrician can then refer the child for a formal autism assessment at that point Um, the second thing though is don't panic right so Yes, kids with a dual diagnosis will have more complex issues, but many of them do really well with a little bit of extra help. Um, You know, you'll get extra funding for things like behavioral consultants, um, which otherwise kids with Down syndrome alone don't receive, right, even though they probably should. And, you know, totally, this is completely personal opinion here. But, you know, in my many years of working with these kids, some of the kids with a dual diagnosis have like, an extra endearing charm that makes even more fun to be around um, with. So it's nothing to be afraid of is, is the point there. Yeah, like when you said that, because I when I, when it first, when some of the professionals were first bringing it up, of course, I was in panic mode because I thought I'm already dealing with Down syndrome. Oh my gosh, how am I going to deal with something else? You know, but you know, it's like, once I got things in place, it, you know, you know, with a good team and stuff, it's made a big difference and, you know, and that people, get her you know and she's got the right things in place to assist her and yeah so it's it's made a big difference so I'm, I'm quite happy about that and you know and like I'm on a couple of different uh, Facebook pages you know there's not that many actually with the for the dual diagnosis but I keep reading from these parents that do have the dual diagnosed kiddos that they often feel like they don't fit in either the Down syndrome world or the Down syndrome or the autism world. But I heard that the DSRF is starting something for these families. So would you like to share what it is? Yeah, absolutely. So we are really excited about this because um, we have all heard over and over again that um, parents feel like they're not getting quite enough support or maybe not the right kind of support. And certainly, 
you know, we've heard a lot that they don't feel that they fit completely into the group of kids with Down syndrome because their kids, you know, might not be developing in the same way and they might not be quite as sociable. And the parents feel that their child has more struggles than the typical child with Down syndrome. Mm -hmm. You know, if there is a typical child with Down syndrome, (laughs) probably not. Um, But uh, and then they don't fit into the autism community either Mm -hmm. because their their child is, you know, intellectually disabled and and you know some kids with with autism also many kids with autism also have an intellectual disability but it's different they yes. just don't it's not not the same kind of thing so um we really recently ran a survey aimed at families who have dually diagnosed children and we asked them all sorts of questions about how supported they feel the unique challenges that their children have i think we got 20 or 30 people who responded and we're we just got the responses back so we're going to be looking in depth at the answers um i've peeked at them already and it's really interesting um but we'll basically we're going to be developing a series of talks and presentations aimed at these families with topics that are geared towards the unique challenges that come with kids who are duly diagnosed Um, But equally important to that educational component is also giving parents the opportunity to connect with Mm -hmm. other parents who are going through similar experiences, right? So that they don't feel so isolated. So we want the families to connect with one another. Um, It's really crucial that families of kids with special needs of any kind experience that parent-to-parent support. Um, And we just know that this is a group of families who is not currently getting that kind of support. So uh, this will be happening in the spring of this year, probably um, maybe even as early as next month. Uh, So yeah, so stay tuned for more information. And we'll put a link on the the, to the DSRF page as well. So yeah, I mean, obviously, it's more for people locally in the lower mainland. But you know, maybe if the some of the things can be posted on the website it can help people elsewhere so yeah absolutely that's fantastic I'm pretty sure I answered one of the surveys so yeah I'm 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 excited so that's awesome great yeah we love the DSRF (laughs) (laughs) and like I know happy to hear that yeah oh yeah and I'm glad that you guys are so local for me it's awesome so you know and I just really want like I know we touched on a little bit that parents know that you know getting the second diagnosis it was hard like it was really really hard and you know I again thought my life was over or pretty much over but you know it, it wasn't you know you know you got to take some time and and kind of figure things out but you know it actually opened up a lot of doors for Ainsley to get different therapies that are really helping her like she's in music therapy that she loves and you know that those are things that I wouldn't have been able to do uh, without the diagnosis I mean nobody wants that extra diagnosis but it wasn't the end of the world like I thought it would be and I mean she's talking and she's toilet trained all those things so you know I just want parents to know that it's it's it can be okay it will be okay absolutely that's a that's a really good um note to end on for sure that definitely you know it ended up being a positive thing for you and Ainsley and you know, that the, especially the fact that you get more funding and for more different types of therapies um, is really quite a fantastic silver lining. Yes, for sure. Yeah, silver lining for sure. 
Yeah. Well, I really want to thank you so much, Susan, Dr. Susan. That's awesome <laughs> that you're, you're now officially a doctor, that you uh, took the time today to come and talk about something that I think is really important to be heard in our community because I don't hear about it a lot, and I but I hear from the parents who have the kids with the dual diagnosis and you know that there's a lot of struggles and, and difficulties and challenges out there. So I think uh, the information that you've provided is is awesome, and I, I think it will really help a lot of the parents out there. And and if people do have questions, is it is it all right for them to contact you? Absolutely, you okay. can definitely um, put my email and phone number in the yeah, that's that's totally fine. Okay, and is it's Susan at dsrf.org, right? Yeah. Okay. And- yeah we can post your phone number in the show notes as well, if if that's okay. So fantastic. Thank you so much, Susan. And we appreciate all the work that you do for our community. Oh, thank you. It's my pleasure. So Mary, this seems to be, uh, the dual diagnosis seems to be very prevalent in the special needs world in terms of Down syndrome and Yes, I think it's more prevalent than maybe people are aware of. I didn't realize until after we spoke with Susan about how prevalent it possibly is. And I do think that parents need to be aware. We don't, I don't want to scare parents because I was absolutely terrified thinking that Ainsley could possibly have autism, like absolutely terrified. But, you know, once I got over the diagnosis experience, which I talked about, which was terrible, you know, I got some good things in place with her and some various therapies and a good team together. And she's really thriving. And, you know, I want parents to know that it's not the end of the world, that, you know, you can still have all the dreams for your child. Again, they might just look a little bit different, but it's important to get that diagnosis if you think your child possibly has it so that you can get some things in place and generally at least in BC you know you have some financial assistance through the government to help make that happen. So I'm going to go out on a limb here and suspect that we're going to go back to to have more discussions in the future on this. I think so and I really would love to hear from people if there's something in particular they would love to hear about dealing with the dual diagnosis, whatever it may be, you know, as I always say, let me know because I will find somebody who can speak to it or find information so that we can share it with our, with our listeners. Cause I think it's important, you know, knowledge is power and you know, the more knowledge that we have, I think the better we're able to help our kids. Okay. So why don't you take us on out of this one? Thanks for listening to the T21 mom podcast. And as always, I would love to hear from you. What things are important to you as you navigate this journey of Down syndrome and special needs? How are you doing things your way? Drop us a line at our email at info at t21mom.com and let us know what's going on in your life. Keep on loving on your rocking kiddos and we'll see you next time. See you, Marie. Bye, Ron. Bye.